Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX to you, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We will be in chapter 6 today, but before we jump into that chapter, a chapter that's going to have us looking at the seven seals, right? I wanted to respond to a question, and it really two questions, and it was a question in regards to how we are called to best define liturgy and best understand active participation. Now, certainly these questions are relevant because, as many of us know now, if you have been a faithful listener to our treatment on the book of Revelation, that yes, the book of Revelation is very much about the liturgy, and so it would be good to hit the pause button, as I like to say, and to consider what the word actually means and how this might help us better understand what it means to actively participate in the Mass. So, Responding to the first question, what is liturgy? If you were to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we read that the word liturgy best translates as public work or a service in the name of on behalf of the people. In Christian tradition, it means the participation of the people of God in the work of God, right? So as the Catechism speaks to it then, we are to understand that through the liturgy, Christ— our Redeemer and High Priest, continues the work of our redemption in, with, and through His Church. And certainly, a scripture verse that might help us to appreciate that definition is Colossians 1.24, where we are called to continue this work of redemption, how we are called to share in this mission of redemption. We know Jesus Christ ransomed us from sin, but yet, as Paul reminds us, For the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, there is this quality of redemptive suffering when we unite our suffering with that of Christ. And for this reason, then, the liturgy is the center of the Catholic spiritual life, the source and summit, right? It is Christ's unconditional loving presence healing us, transforming us, unifying us, and granting us that deep peace that we long for. It is also worth noting here that when Christ says, this is my body which will be given up for you, in the original Greek he is saying, this is my whole self which will be given up for you. What does that mean? Well, (laughs) Christ is giving his whole unconditional love to us that we might actually share and participate in the very life of the Trinity. Remember how we define the Trinity Love given, love received, and love shared. And as Christ reveals on the cross, this love shared is sacrificial, and this, my friends, is what we are called to share in. Now, what about that all-important phrase of just not participation, but active participation, or as some of us have come to know it as actuoso participatio? The phrase active participation comes to us from Vatican II, And while for some of us it might mean something external, a closer look reveals its true meaning. Break up the word, huh? 
part is the patient. Essentially, part is the patient. <laughs> refers to a principal action in which everyone plays a what? A part. In other words, we discover our doing to the degree that we understand the central action, the actuoso, of which we participate in, which is the solemn public speech of God in and through the priest, especially during the Eucharistic prayer. So where does the word work come into play? How are we to understand this? When I first heard that phrase that the liturgy is a public work, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then I got to thinking, well, what happens in the story of creation? When God speaks, he creates, and thus he performs a work, a work that, my dear friends, brings about a new creation. So the uniqueness of the liturgy of the Eucharist is that it is God himself who is acting in and through human speech, and we are drawn into that action. So to the degree that we enter into the words themselves with both mind and heart is to the degree that we participate in the liturgy, in the Mass. Let's simplify this, if you will. When you say to your beloved, I love you, and you say it with mind and heart, you mean it, you're very intentional when you say it, does that not have a transformative power over you? Well, sure it does. Now, if you say, I love you to your beloved, and you just have said it so often that you don't really think about what you're saying anymore, and it just has become routine, and it's become kind of part of what just, you know, just what you do without thinking about it in the morning and at nighttime, and well, does that have a transformative power over you? Probably not. You see, to actively participate in the Mass is to be very intentional with both mind and heart so as to enter into the words that are being said up on the altar, that they actually might have a transformative power over us. And of course, all of this is to be understood in the light of grace, right? I love this passage that comes to us from Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the Constitution on the Divine Liturgy, the document on the liturgy from Vatican II. It says this, In the liturgy, divinity comes to humanity, and humanity is drawn into divinity. In the liturgy, the visible is directed and subordinated to the invisible. Action is directed and subordinated to contemplation. The present world is directed and subordinated to that city yet to come. All those who see themselves as pilgrims are the city of the living God and never cease in moving towards it. Beautiful. So we are called to what did Sacrosanctum Concilium say? Contemplate the meaning of the words. Enter into what you're saying. The word contemplation coming from the Latin contemplatio means to gaze, to look at, to look at what? Something sacred. The root there, templum, means that which belongs to the sacred. So we are called to look at that which is sacred. And this is why when we walk into churches, we have churches that encourage a deeper contemplation about the stuff of God. This is why we have murals and stained glass windows and statues and all these things, because they provoke within us this sense of the need to contemplate. And we are given these images to contemplate, right? Because when you're contemplating that which belongs to God, you just don't look at it. No, you look into it, through it, seeing the, the new death dimension beyond it. As I like to 
put it within the context of the mystical, we see the river beyond the river or the mountain beyond the mountain. This is what it's about. And certainly all these things hopefully resonate with us when it comes to how we are to better understand liturgy and active participation. Now, there is an additional way in which we participate in the liturgy, and that is the way in which we lay down our lives, right? Like that of Christ. In everything we do, and for a select few, some of us are even martyred for our faith. And I bring this up because, while obviously it's a unique participation in the very death of Christ, but also because recently Pope Francis has announced that he wishes to hasten the cause of Father Hamill's possible sainthood. And as many of us know, Father Jacques Hamill was the priest who was slain by the ISIS militants. In September, he suggested, that is Pope Francis, that Father Jacques Hamill is a new martyr who should be venerated. And one particular witness to his death had something very interesting to say in the light of this, especially considering what we just talked about in our last time together. Listen to what Sister Danielle said. Again, this was a sister who was witness to this martyrdom. Father Jacques Hamel had been a priest for 58 years. He had just celebrated Christ's sacrifice when he was slain, just like the lamb that he had served and celebrated all his life. How about that, my friends? What were we talking about <laughs> just the other day? But were we not talking about the lamb being slain in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6? Sister Danielle concluded, He died instantly, being the first priest killed by the hand of a jihadist on European soil in the 21st century. He is a new martyr. Martyr, a word that when you translate the Greek martyria, best means witness. Witness. How do we witness to the very life and death of Christ? By allowing Christ to live within us. And if we are called to lay down our life in that red martyrdom, in that blood martyrdom, that we might say yes to God, that we might die with Jesus on our lips. Recall the account of St. Polycarp of Smyrna that I read last week when we were reflecting into the letter to the church of Smyrna, how Polycarp was a great witness to so many in that Colosseum. He was a martyr. He chose to drink from the cup of Christ. And again, this is how we participate in the liturgy. And with that, we have our segue, because in Revelation chapter 6, we learn that what happens in the liturgy of heaven has, as Michael Barber says in Coming Soon, and I love this, earth-shaking consequences. Throughout the book, the events on earth are affected by the actions of Jesus and with the angels and saints in the heavenly liturgy. Therefore, as our Lord opens the seven scrolls, things begin to unravel on earth. The four horsemen that we will be talking about this evening, also mentioned in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, should probably be identified as four angels, huh? The havoc they wreak seems to summarize the curses that Moses warned Israel would be triggered if they broke the covenant and were unfaithful to the Lord God. If you were to go to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 to 28, and Deuteronomy chapter 28, these are the covenant curses that we read about. So just as Jesus warned by rejecting him, all the covenant curses came upon his generation when Jerusalem was destroyed. 
So before we get into Revelation chapter 6, I wanted to first read Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 to 36. Listen carefully to what Jesus has to say here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. Okay, now I read those verses because those verses will come to play themselves out here later in the book of Revelation chapter 6. The horsemen, my friends, bring about God's covenant judgment on Jerusalem which occurred in the destruction of the temple. And the significance of understanding that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD is so important, my friends, throughout this whole book. Remember that the word generation, that word that comes to us again in Matthew 23, verse 36 that I just read, literally means 40 years. Genoa means 40 years. So something is to play out in this 40-year time span. And what plays out but the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it should be to no surprise then that the judgments brought about by the opening of the first six seals correspond strikingly to our Lord's description of the fall of Jerusalem in the Gospels. And Dr. Barber highlighted Chilton the other day, and he has another diagram, and I think it's really good here, where he draws the parallels between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24. The book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, we read of war, as we do in Matthew 24, 6. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, we read of international strife, as we do in Matthew 24, 7. We read of famine and, and pestilence and persecution in Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 to 11, as we do in Matthew chapter 24, verses 7 to 13. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, we read of this decreation as we do in Matthew 24, verses 15 to 31. So the prophecy of the four horsemen may have actually found a fulfillment in a vision seen by many right before the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, uh, the figure you've heard me talk about before, the Jewish historian who was uh, present during the time of Christ and who recorded and chronicled the events surrounding the life of Christ, wrote down the signs that occurred in the city which seemed to signal the coming of the end. Listen to Josephus. A certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it. Before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds. Huh, isn't that interesting? After narrating this, Josephus goes on to tell about a prophet who warned of a voice from the four winds, which certainly corresponds to what John saw and what he pens at the beginning of chapter 7. But before we get there, let us get into these verses themselves. Chapter 6, 
verses 1 to 2. The first seal, the first horseman. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, it may be possible to see the first rider as Jesus himself. Jesus certainly comes riding in on a horse, white horse in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11. He is also said to conquer, as this horseman does, in chapter 3, 5, and 17. Yet, there are problems with this interpretation since the horseman appears to share the same nature as the other horsemen. There is nothing especially remarkable about him. He is simply one of the four. This could probably be understood in terms of a false messiah who comes before Christ and leads people astray. We don't know. How about the second seal, the second horseman? Chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the second horse brings persecution and civil unrest. And given the parallels we just talked about in the synoptics, it may also denote what but international strife. Josephus, again, recounts how civil unrest abounded at this time in Palestine as Romans, Jews, Syrians, and others broke out in violence against one another. Even Roman historians report that civil unrest in Rome was so great, it was thought that Rome itself would collapse and be conquered. Okay, again, historical context to the book of Revelation is so important to understanding so much of what John is after and how we are called to understand and really integrate that understanding in our lives. All right, how about the third seal, the third horseman? Verses 5 to 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I saw, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a balance in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarii, and three quarts of barley for a denarii, but do not harm oil and wine. That's interesting there. That, that one of, of the four specific to the four horsemen probably has me most intrigued. Certainly the symbol of a balance or scales is used as a symbol for famine, since it is then that food needs to be carefully weighed and, and measured out as the price of it skyrockets. You see this in, oh, who was the prophet? The prophet Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 10. A quart of wheat for a denarii and three quarts of barley for a denarii. This would seem to represent uh, this kind of skyrocketing or superinflation. These prices translate to mean that a whole day's work would only earn enough bread to last one man for one day. Essentially here, man is just barely surviving, living day to day. It is also interesting to note that oil and wine are not to be harmed. Some Old Testament backdrop would help us here. Wheat is harvested during Pentecost, right? During the spring harvest. Yet oil and wine are not affected, indicating that the later harvest associated with the Feast of Booze, okay, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Booze, these, are, these were two of the seven principal uh, Jewish feast days. So oil and wine 
are not affected, indicating that the later harvest, again associated with the Feast of Booze, has not been hurt. Thus, the famine is severe, but does not last the whole year. So the judgments of the seven seals, therefore, are escalating, but have not climaxed yet. And perhaps it is significant that the sacramental elements are to be left untouched. Bread, wine, and oil. Okay, the fourth seal, the fourth horseman. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I saw, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What can we say about the color of this horse? Usually translated pale. The Greek there is chloros. And from this word we get the English chlorophyll, right? Which gives leaves their green color. So this would probably be better translated as green, which communicates a more sickly color, if you will. The writer's name, Death and Hades, seems to demonstrate that he is the worst of the four. In fact, it seems that the fourth horseman here is a combination of the other writers that came before him. The meaning of power over a fourth of the earth is a bit unclear. It may be seen as part of the overall destruction narratives on the whole. The trumpets bring about the destruction of one-third of the land in chapter 8, verses 7 to 12, while the chalices destroy all that's left. Now again, what's important for us to, to appreciate here is that the final horseman's judgment of famine and violence may very well find a first century fulfillment in the situation of Jerusalem right before the judgment of the year 70 AD. We turn to Josephus as he described the state of Jerusalem right before it fell. He said this, the madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine. And both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. For there was no corn which anywhere appeared publicly. But the robbers came running into and searched men's houses, private houses. And then, if they found any, they tormented them, because they had denied they had any. And if they found none, they tormented them worse, because they supposed they had more carefully concealed it. A table was nowhere laid for a distinct meal. But they snatched the bread out of the fire, half-baked, and ate it very hastily. Consequently, violence and famine afflicted Jerusalem just as John saw. Okay, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, this description of the saints as under the altar, what's going on there? Well, it is probably meant to illustrate their deaths as sacrificial. When animals were sacrificed in the temple, the blood from the offering would actually run down to the base of the altar, ending up under the altar. The blood and hence the souls of these martyrs are what? But under the altar because they offered their lives in sacrifice to God. So John learns that these saints must wait until the full number of martyrs is killed. 
illustrating that God is holding back his judgment, which will eventually be poured out all at once. Does this not evoke the very words that we have already talked about? Matthew 23, verse 32 and verse 35. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. You see how these verses begin to link up with each other, huh? How about the white garments symbolizing the righteous deeds of these saints and thereby connecting them with the 24 elders we already talked about in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, who have also offered their lives as priestly sacrifices. Isn't that an interesting image, by the way, that the blood of Christ cleans the robe and makes it white as snow? Last time together, we talked about the importance of purity and how in that beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We have a Greek that not only means pure, clean, and, and a heart that is not mixed with something else, but it is a Greek word that translates a Hebrew that was used within the context of, once again, the Levitical priestly rite of offering. So it is the pure blood of Christ streaming through our veins that we might gain a hold of what's going on here, that indeed it is Christ's pure blood that cleans our garment white as snow. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time, and I was hoping to get through the sixth deal, but that's okay. This is where we will pick up next time. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, observations, please don't hesitate to email me at jhollljmj at yahoo.com or you can always just go to my website, joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. As I opened up this evening with a couple of your questions, I always enjoy your questions and, and bringing them to the radio program. As I noted uh, a few programs ago, many of your questions are probably best answered within the context of what we are doing over these months in treating the book of Revelation. So I just kind of let you know on an individual basis and just kind of give you a heads up to when I'll be talking about certain things. But on occasion, like today, certainly I like to respond specifically to your question, especially when it enhances and enriches what I am saying. You know, to just define liturgy or to just define active participation, I think is really important for us as I spend so much time talking about these things. Okay. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.